Welcome. Uh, it gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Janice Viali Matern, who's a professor of international relations at uh, Lehigh University. Her book, Ordering International Politics, Identity, Crisis, and Representational Force, uh, at least for my money, is one of the most important statements of language and international politics out there. I mean, no one can write about the um, constitutive power of language to create subjects and agents in international politics without contending with that book. And uh, she has a related EJR article, The Power Politics of Identity, that also can't be ignored. Um, and very importantly, most recently, uh, Janice has been um, pursuing the topic of emotion in international relations. And um, I'm very, very happy to present uh, her work to you today, which will be on the emotional politics of transnational crime. Thanks a lot, Janice, for coming. Okay, so <clears throat> this is all new to me with the microphone, and it's freaking me out a little bit. I'm not a high-tech person. I don't have slides or anything. So the microphone is a big adjustment alone. Um, let's see. Uh, the work I want to present to you today is uh, part of a larger book project that's about the character of contemporary world order. And I want to focus actually just on one part of that, on the core analytic of the broader project, and that's what I call the emotional politics of transnational crime. I want to emphasize that this is a theory-building project. It's also very much in its workshop phase. So I offer this in humility, um, hoping at, at, at best to dazzle you with exciting arguments and then to not be able to offer you any compelling defense of them. Um, but uh, let me start with something gory, because uh, you're all eating. Um, in February of 2006, nine headless bodies were found in the Mexican state of Guerrero. The heads uh, belonged to U.S.-trained Mexican soldiers. They were found together in plastic bags at a U.S. training camp in Mexico. Uh, spray painted on the ground next to the heads was uh, the symbol MS-13, which stands for Mara Salvatruca 13, which is uh, the name of a transnational gang that spans Central and North America uh, and which controls human smuggling routes across the Americas. Uh, less overtly gory but still arresting uh, example was is a 2008 video posted on YouTube that's been viewed all around the world, and maybe you've viewed it, although it's been taken down. Um, and in it, there are members of the Latin Kings, uh, a Hispanic gang, transnational gang, that's centered in Los Angeles, but that um, also spans Central and, and, and North America. Um, and it's standing, they're standing side by side with members of a rival gang, the Bloods, which is a U.S.-based black gang, and wielding automatic assault rifles, which they're intermittently firing in the course of wrapping a death threat to the Miami-Dade Police Department and Miami-based federal agents that are involved in collaborating uh, in the oversight of an international anti-gang initiative. So these stories are striking on many levels, but what interests me in particular about them uh, is that they are more than just garden variety violence of the sort that's common in the conduct of normal transnational economic crime. They're acts of political resistance. And across the Americas, transnational crime networks are becoming transnational political rebels in this way. 
They are collaborating across national, ethnic, and territorial boundaries in violence. And they are specifically directing that violence at challenging the authoritative reach of national and international institutions, just like terrorists or insurgent networks. But they are not terrorists or insurgent networks. Transnational criminals, as Stanley Hoffman puts it, are intrinsically economically oriented, whereas terrorists and insurgent networks have political motivations that they sometimes seek to finance through criminal activities. Transnational criminal networks, quote, couldn't care less about political change. Transnational crime networks are forged around the collaborative pursuit of illicit profit. They certainly have incentives to corrupt states, and they certainly have incentives to try to get rid of international authorities, but they have no motive to challenge the legitimacy of international authorities or states to govern. To the contrary, uh, as Susan Strange notes, transnational criminals depend upon the existence of authoritative national and international rules that can be profitably broken. So this leaves us with a puzzle. Why are transnational crime networks challenging the political legitimacy of the very national and international authorities upon which they depend? And what I want to do is suggest one account of why um, and in the process talk about how this is happening. And this account puts emotion at the heart of this curious turn to transnational criminals, um, the turn by transnational criminals to transnational political rebellion. So I'm going to proceed in um, three steps, hopefully four, uh, depending on, on how slow or fast I go. Um, first, I want to start by considering what emotion is and how it works. Second, I want to theorize the emotional experience of transnational criminals operating across the Americas. Third, I want to spell out how this particular emotional experience creates an incentive among transnational criminals for violent transnational political rebellion. In other words, in this third step, I want to show how the appeal to emotion promises to resolve the puzzle that motivates this research. And then last, I'm going to end with a whimper uh, by touching on but, but not systematically presenting the empirical dimensions of the research. Um, partly because it's not done. Um, the data's been gathered um, uh, in one case and mostly analyzed in that case, and in the other case, I'm still in the process of, of gathering it. So I want to make two prefatory remarks, though. Uh, first, I want to clarify the scope of my inquiry because it's a little bit unfamiliar. I am interested, at least for now, in transnational crime networks across the Americas, uh, and specifically the trend among those networks toward political violence against symbols of international political authority. And I'm emphasizing this because transnational crime networks are relatively stable associations of groups or cliques that collaborate across borders. And when we talk about transnational crime most of the time, we focus on particular cliques in local settings that are resisting local governments or resisting um, their national government. I am not interested in that so much here, although they're connected. I'm interested in the transnational network as a whole, the collaborations among the cliques um, uh, to, uh, to in, in the engagement of political violence. Okay, and I'm interested in particular in the focus on the Americas. So uh, that's first the, the scope uh, clarification. The second clarification is my appeal to emotion. Um, there are at least two other obvious ways of thinking about why there's been this turn to transnational political violence. 
One is a rationalist explanation, and this would deny that this is political violence. Instead, it would emphasize that there's economic rationality going on behind here, that these overt acts of violence are aimed towards beating states down. Uh, and uh, that, therefore, we can explain this away not as political violence, but as completely consistent with um, general economic activities of transnational criminals. The problem is, if that's the case, then this has been an extraordinarily bad decision, and we should have seen a reversal by now, because states have hardly rolled over. On the contrary, they've beefed up their international collaborations. Arrests have skyrocketed. Um, the FBI and ICE, um, Immigration Customs Enforcement, are now collaborating more robustly than they ever have before uh, with police in Honduras, Mexico, Guatemala, Colombia, and more. And just a few weeks ago, there was an 1,800 gang member sweep across the Americas, collaborated um, or coordinated in, in collaboration among these agencies. So if this is a rational choice, it's a failure, and we should have seen a reversal by now. Um, the other explanation um, is a sociological explanation which would link political violence to social grievances among members uh, of the transnational crime networks. But given that transnational crime net networks are made up of multiple distinct cells, as I pointed out, that are disparate, physically disparate from one another, and also ethnically and racially and so on, it's pretty hard to make the case um, that they are actually engaged in some kind of collective action toward a grievance, because in the end, with 75,000 members, for instance, in MS-13, across at least seven or eight different countries, the question arises of exactly who the grievance is being made against, and on, on behalf of what collective social values. But the sociological perspective does raise an important point, and it's one that I take as my jumping off here, and that's that no matter how dispersed transnational crime networks are, in principle, it is possible for their economic objectives to evolve or to develop to include political ones as well. So the question, given their spatial, ethnic, national, and racial dispersion, is how this might have happened, right? And it is there that I turn towards emotion. Okay, so let me say a bit about emotion. Um, emotions, happiness, sadness, fear, anger, whatever, you name it, um, I take to be physically embodied experiences of being. They are ways of being in the world uh, in the sense of one's physiologic and or psychic condition or state. So they may be momentary like sensations, they may be durable by moods, um, and they may be anywhere on a spectrum of in-between. Um, but in any case, emotions are significant to me in this context because they involve changes or movements in one's lived experience of being. They literally move the physical um, uh, uh, machinations of a body from one dynamic to another. So the question, of course, is where emotions come from and how they work. And this, of course, has been a primary difficulty um, for emotion theorists to figure out. And so one, maybe one reason why there's been relatively little sustained inquiry into emotion um, in political life, particularly in IR, but there has been a renewed in interest um, and one of the reasons is because there has been uh, a number of breakthroughs in neuroscience um, on research related to emotion. And that is what motivates or makes possible my argument. And I want to call to attention particularly two of these breakthroughs. 
Um, the first has been introduced in IR um, by Andrew Ross, Nita Crawford, and Rose McDermott. Um, and this insight offers that contra-common parlance, emotions are not genetically pre-programmed properties of bodies. Rather, they're physiological capabilities. They are skills that our bodies develop in and through the social world. I won't pretend to be able to explain exactly how our bodies acquire capabilities this way, um, but broadly speaking, it centers on rhythmic integration, or what's also known as entrainment, between the body's physiological systems and social systems within which it's embedded. And this doesn't necessarily mean cognition only. So the idea is that social systems, cultures, societies, habitus, institutions, relationships, whatever, um, they entail particular kinds of emotional energy. So for instance, the emotional energy at a funeral is uh, notably different than the emotional energy at a wedding. And those emotional energies circulate through the social space, particularly through symbols, through rituals, or through other unique practices within that space, within that system. So the eulogy uh, at the funeral um, or the vows at the wedding. Um, and these inaugurate the flows uh, of particular emotions in the sense that the body learns to respond automatically to these rituals, again, automatically meaning without cognitive reflection um, to these symbols. That's not to say cognitive reflection can't also be involved, but it's to say that one can experience emotion without cognitive reflection. Um, and it automatically activates some flow of feelings um, in response to some particular trigger over time, perpetuating the cycle, and it gets attached to a particular emotion concept. So we um, understand ourselves to be feeling sad at a funeral and joy at a wedding. <clears throat> the point here um, is that while emotions are bodily or physiological ways of being, the range and character of a body's emotional possibilities depend significantly on the emotional potentialities that are circulating through the social system in which they're embedded. Okay, so that's the first neuroscientific insight that's relevant to my project. And then the second one, which is um, introduced or about to be introduced, I should say, by John Mercer in an article that's forthcoming in I.O., um, is that the bodily capacity for emotion is a prerequisite, it is a necessity for the cognitive function of rational decision making. And in now famous studies, um, a neuroscientist, Antonio Damasio, um, which is the root of this finding, um, he discovered that patients who had sustained injuries to parts of the brain that were central to emotion processing, those patients were incapable of making rational decisions. And the reason for this is that they weren't able to give value to facts, to options, to alternatives, so they couldn't figure out what to want. Emotions rectify this problem because they're lived as either positive or negative, and so they allow us to give value to things. It's because they allow us to give value to things that they enable cognitive calculations about costs and benefits, right? So they inform choice, and in emotion theorists, as they put it, um, once they inform choice, they carry action tendencies. So emotions carry action tendencies because they inform rational choices. Um, and the emotional body, therefore, guides the reasoning actor. All right, so um, against the backdrop of these findings, I want to turn to my second step, um, 
because I want to suggest that the politically violent actions of transnational criminal networks are an action tendency which are made rational uh, to participants in transnational crime networks through the effects of a particular emotional energy, um, an emotional energy that I'm calling abjection, and I'll say um, quite a bit more about that. Abjection um, is circulating, I want to argue, through the social space of the Americas in which transnational crime networks that I'm interested in are operating. Um, so, But before I, I, I do that, um, I need to make two further clarifications. Um, the first is that... Uh, Following Headley Bull, I characterize the social space of the Americas as an international society, meaning that that interstate order is not the billiard ball order, um, but an order that rests on specific principles collectively held among the member states. Um, and in the case of the Americas, those specific principles center on a unique collective sensitivity to sovereign autonomy, sovereign independence. Um, this is particularly so as compared to, say, the EU or even the Atlantic community. And you can see this unique sensitivity um, in the particularly robust language at the very beginning of the uh, Charter of the Organization of American States. Uh, the second clarification here is that although the participants in the transnational crime networks that interest me here are obviously physically and socially disparate, as I, as I mentioned um, at the outset, they are nonetheless all necessarily embedded within the social space of Pan-American international society. And in fact, over the last 20 years, it's become harder and harder for them to ignore the fact that in addition to being part of whatever local cliques they're a part of or whatever national network they're a part of, that they are also part of an international network. Uh, and that in part is because in the last 20 years, they've become increasingly positioned as the abject to international society. And it is the abject um, that then leads to this experience of abjection. Uh, so the abject is a term that I use not in the colloquial sense, but as it comes from social psychoanalytic philosophy. Um, and it's to be understood as any presence within a self or society that at once belongs to that self or society. It, it belongs to it and yet is also somehow unfathomable to that self or society. So Julia Kristeva, for instance, who is a key figure in the early variation of this literature, um, tries to give some sense of what might be abject to the individual. Uh, and she focuses uh, in particular on bodily excretions, um, vomit, feces, whatever. Um, uh, the things that come out of us that we don't like. Um, others, including Edward Said, France Fanon, they focus on that which is abject to Western societies, pointing especially to the raced, the sexed, the diseased, and the immigrants, um, and other uh, groups like this. Um, so building on a, a more post-Freudian analysis, um, psychoanalytic theory, and, and I'll bracket that if you want to talk about it in Q&A, but uh, just to leave that trace there. Um, I want to say how transnational crime networks have become um, abject to inter-American society. And I think that they have in the sense that they forge both, uh, I'm sorry, that they are both fundamentally in defiance of the authority of the sovereign state international order that that society understands itself to be. And at the same time, they're the ultimate expression of the values entailed in that sensitivity to sovereignty. Because what is sovereignty 
if not an homage to individualism or self-sufficiency? And what is transnational crime, if not the ultimate expression of individualism and self-sufficiency? In fact, of precisely the sort uh, that Pan-American development projects have allegedly been trying to cultivate for so long. So what turns on this um, is that the presence of the abject creates a complex emotional energy that tends to entrain bodies to contradictory ways of being. For instance, the simultaneous experience of disgust and desire, um, or our shameful delight in our own bodily waste, uh, or wanting to both stare at and turn away from the disfigured. And these divergent experiences of wanting something and not wanting it, of being attracted and repulsed, uh, according to psychoanalytic theory, can't be unified or reconciled. Right? The abject, uh, to quote Chris Deva here, provokes a twisted, impenetrable braid of affect. A twisted, impenetrable braid of affect, a way of being that we can call abjection. The abject provokes abjection. The feeling of simultaneously contradicting oneself. Um, and my proposition is that transnational Criminals have become entrained triggers for the emotional experience of abjection uh, among most states of inter-American society. Um, and my claim here is not necessarily a metaphorical one. Um, states uh, have real bodies that really experience emotion. That's the claim. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Um, and that's not because states are people too. It's because people are states. So um, I'm, I'm with Patrick Jackson on this one. Sorry, Alex. <laughs> um, so to say that states experience abjection in response to transnational crime then is to say that they move those in whom the state is embodied right, to a twisted braid of affect. So this is why it makes sense to us when statesmen use completely contradictory language to describe transnational crime. Uh, for instance, uh, consider the contradictory emotional rhetoric um, at a recent summit of the OAS. And I'm, I'm quoting here from a, from a press um, release that came out of this OAS summit. Um, Transnational crime is a revolting disease that is eating away at the flesh of our sovereign order, but these organizations are attractive for their promise of wealth. In other words, it's at, at once revolting and attractive, at once destroying us and making us wealthy, uh, fortifying us. Um, uh, equally as compelling, um, or maybe even more so, are the myriad ways in which Pan-American popular culture glorifies transnational criminals, even while berating them. Think here about Mexican narco ballads um, or banger couture on suburban kids. Um, I was actually at a friend's house last night, and his 14-year-old kid kept doing this. Um, which are the devil's horns for MS-13. Um, yeah, I'm pretty sure that kid had no idea what he was doing. Um, in any case, the experience of abjection is important in societies that value the intelligibility of the self. Um, it's important in self-reflective or um, modern society in, in Giddens' sense. Um, and the reason for this is that abjection in this sort of society touches off a spiral of other emotions that create particular political action tendencies. It touches off a spiral of emotions um, that create emotional incentives uh, for particular kinds of political action. 
Um, so to see this, uh, return for a moment to emotion theory, um, which tells us that emotions are neither positive nor negative. I'm sorry, that they're either positive or negative, um, and that this helps inform rationality. Uh, but the problem with the emotion of objection, then, is that it is both positive and negative, and neither alone. It cannot be disentangled. It is a twisted braid of affect. So whereas in the absence, the absence of emotion in Damasio's patients made it so that they had no information about how to value things, the experience of abjection means a chaos of contradictory value information that is impossible to reconcile. Um, and that raises existential questions for the self or society that is self-reflective or modern. Um, how is one able to make sense of one's own existence? After all, if the licit sovereign states of international society aren't moved to an unambiguously negative experience by transnational crime networks, then what exactly is the nature of the distinction between the licit and the illicit? In this way, abjection uh, moves a society to the experience of uh, what Kristeva calls self-decay or fainting away. Um, right? And recall here the networks eating away at the flesh of our order. So what to do? Um, and the solution um, is the problem. Um, the solution is that the action tendency that follows from abjection um, ultimately turns the self or society into the abject of that which produces its abjection. In other words, transnational crime networks, I've argued, are abject to international society in the Americas, but international society um, then turns around and seeks to manage its abjection, and the way that it does so actually turns international society into the abject of the transnational criminal. Um, and this creates um, a contemporary emotional dynamic, or it is the contemporary emotional dynamic between international society and transnational crime <coughs> networks, and it ultimately constitutes the logic behind the turn towards political violence against international authorities. Um, so consider how a society in the throes of abjection would seek um, to ameliorate its situation. Uh, well, on the one hand, uh, it could seek to purify itself, right, to root out um, the abject presence. Um, and that would be what we do with the other, right, to exile it to the other side of some wall. The difference is that the other is foreign to begin with, and so we can exile it, but the abject is part of the self. And in fact, society, ironically, needs the very abject that threatens to destroy it, the very abject which challenges it. Um, and again, consider uh, what would happen if we were to simply deny our need to excrete bodily waste. We would die of our own toxicity. What would happen if the U.S. were to simply close its borders to immigrants? We would... Um, the foundational principle of American society as a place for the tired, poor, huddled masses um, would begin to crumble. Um, and in the current historical framework, uh, if inter-American society were to root out transnational crime networks, its foundational principle of sovereign equality, um, I'm suggesting, would crumble. And part of the reason for this um, is that transnational crime serves to give all sides in the Pan-American community or international society cover for U.S. interventionism in the region. 
so long as transnational crime networks threaten to eat away at the flesh of the inter-American society, transnational crime networks must be dealt with. And, uh, of course, the U.S. has the resources for this expensive collaborative policing that, that uh, is necessary for that kind of activity. So as long as trans networks, transnational crime networks besiege the region, um, the U.S. sort of imperialism uh, or, or, or interventionism need not refute the principles of sovereign equality because the dominance of the U.S. becomes a collaborative tactic that's born out of need for managing an exceptional threat. And in this way, the transnational crime um, network or the transnational criminal threatens to destroy the sovereign interstate order, and yet it perpetuates the very possibility that there is anything, any real sensitivity to sovereignty within it. So it perpetuates the very underlying logic of the society in the first place. It makes it possible. Okay. Um, when the self-reflective society that values its intelligibility is confronted with the necessity of living with that which destroys it, the result is phobic obsession. Um, and society begins, in, in this argument, to obsessively develop and execute strategies for minimizing the presence and the impact of the abject within itself. Um, so it establishes public social rituals for hiding, for silencing, for otherwise controlling its abject. Um, and it does this in ways that are far more robust and punitive than those used to control presences um, that are just unambiguously unpleasant. Right? So society dehumanizes its abject in the way that it doesn't dehumanize regular bad guys. It denies them agencies, agency, it holds them captive. Um, so, for instance, immigrants are welcomed into the U.S., but they're um, subject to biometric surveillance, they're silenced by a biased legal system, and sometimes they're outright hidden in detention centers. Um, for its part, uh, the Inter-American International Society has responded to its transnational abject by developing one of the most aggressive, relentless, and punitive international law enforcement and criminal justice regimes in the world. Um, it is certainly not the one that has the most laws and the most regulations, that's the EU, um, but the ones that it has are the most punitive, the most aggressive, and then it engages in practices that aren't actually legally legislated anywhere in treaties between them, uh, countries. Um, so the explosion of this Pan-American international law and policing regime, formal and informal, across the Americas in the last 15 years has actually been driven almost exclusively by the development of anti-transnational crime provisions and operations. So it's been expressly targeted um, at the discipline of transnational crime networks. And there's more. Um, because the phobic society abhors but needs its abject, right? The international society both abhors and needs its transnational criminals. Uh, its phobic disciplinary systems are relentless. Right? There's no chance of redemption for the abject. There's no chance of reform for the abject. Once the system detects it, the target faces a life of silence, of surveillance, of discipline. Um, and in the case of transnational criminals, this is accomplished in the obvious ways, harsh sentences, unforgiving legal pr provisions, 
but also through exclusionary everyday policing practices that create the inclusion of into society, but an exclusive status within that society. So for instance, um, gang injunctions in Los Angeles um, are a great example of this. And they, the thing about gang injunctions is that they're now an international practice across the Americas. But for those of you who don't know about the gang injunctions, um, it's, it is unlawful in a neighborhood that is designated to have a gang injunction. Um, it is unlawful to stand on the sidewalk um, because they take these to be gang, uh, po- the possibility for fomenting gang engagement. <laughs> so even those who aren't actually imprisoned are held captive. Right? Um, and they are captives. What's worse, they're captives enlisted in the service of a society that loathes them. Right? So finally, then, I want to emphasize that this kind of phobic discipline is reserved for the abject. It does not extend to enemies or regular bad guys, meaning those that don't elicit this kind of um, unintelligibility of self, the existential crisis. Enemies, like terrorists, right? they're so foreign that they can be exiled or killed. It's more physically punitive, certainly, um, but there's also an escape there, uh, whereas that's not the case for the abject. They're policed even when they're not imprisoned. They're surveilled even when they're not imprisoned. And regular bad guys, I don't know, burglars, um, they're policed, they're imprisoned, but ultimately they're offered the opportunity for reform. But the abject has no such chance to get beyond the reach of the disciplinary authority. Okay, so it's in this context, the impossibility of escape, that the disciplinary international society in turn becomes the abject to the transnational criminals. Um, And to uh, make sense of this, I want to emphasize that transnational crime networks live and operate within the sovereignty-celebrating Pan-American international space. So they are likely entrained to some positive emotional experience in response to rituals that symbolize expressions of their own sovereignty, their own independence, their own autonomy. Uh, And in this sense, um, it's important to recognize that uh, crime has value for these transnational criminals, not only for its material yield, but for the experience of being it creates, the experience of feeling autonomous. Uh, Conversely, um, engagements with international authorities provoke negative emotions for transnational criminals, I'm positing, um, not just for the material losses they imply, uh, but for the change they portend in that experience of being. That is, uh, for the denial of autonomy. Um, so the more profoundly international authorities deny the opportunity for that autonomy, the more robust the negative emotion. And in the case of transnational crime networks who are unable to escape the captivity of discipline, as I've just described, um, this circulation of affect, of negative affect, becomes overwhelming in France Fanon's formulation in training the captive to the experience of loathing its captor. Um, That's not surprising, Um, but relentless captivity um, has this other side, which is that the unauthorized independence or autonomy that these criminals so value alongside the material part um, is made possible by those international authorities in the first place. After all, if there's no rules to break, then there's no autonomy gained in the process of doing so. And so in this sense, transnational um, criminals are dependent upon, even complicitous, um, with the very international authorities 
um, that oppress them. Um, and so in the end, there is um, twisted within the repugnance or loathing um, of, of transnational criminals to uh, international law enforcement, a sort of demure gratitude. And I would point here to the important role that playing, um, played by going to prison um, in the, in the um, in the prestige and authority of a criminal within his network. Um, so an ineluctable entwinement of positive and negative emotions. Um, abjection. So it's from here that we can see the emotional rationality of violent political mobilization. Um, abjection, I've suggested, drives those it besieges to phobic obsession with hiding and silencing the abject that it can't expunge. Um, <clears throat> but in the case of the abject, that phobic obsession only deepens the problem because where transnational crime networks pursue the disciplinary strategies like this, they only further deepen their abject standing in international society. So, for instance, transnational criminals would seek to silence and hide international authorities um, by hollowing out states, by corrupting them, um, or by otherwise trying to capture them. Um, but the more they do so, the more intense states' emotional incentives to expand and deepen their disciplinary program, and so escalates the cycle of discipline and counter-discipline, but in an asymmetric fashion. Right? For international society... Such discipline preserves the possibility of the intelligible distinction between licit and illicit. But for the transnational crime network, it only worsens the criminal's captivity and the experience of unintelligibility, creating value chaos about criminality as an action. Um, creating a sort of question about whether or not um, there's any value one way or the other. Why continue when all that's left is the economic gain, um, and yet economic gain comes with this captivity, yet why cease? Because the captivity won't cease even if you do cease. So the individual transnational criminal who experiences this objection carries this, this existential chaos, with him to the relationship with other network members. Right? It suffuses social gatherings into the relationship. Um, it suffuses social gatherings in local cliques as they tell stories about this or that compatriot who got busted. Um, it ripples upward, becoming explicit or implicit during high-level meetings among the so-called shot callers during the actual transaction of the criminal endeavor itself. In this way, it ripples outward, setting the tone of a smuggling handoff, for instance, um, from one MS-13 coyote at the border to the one on the other side. Um, it sets the tone of the cocaine drop um, between the Latin kings and the bloods. Um, in other words, abjection becomes an entrained response of the social system of transnational criminality itself. And it's at this point that the incentive for mobilization to political violence emerges because, as Fanon explains, it's at this point that the impossibility of the situation becomes conscious to the criminal if it hasn't already. Um, it creates incentives to do something, uh, either to give up and die, either physically or as a subject, um, or uh, to move forth. And an example so beautiful that I, I hope you'll pardon my profanity, um, uh, there, uh, Flacco, um, one of the, one of the uh, 
speakers on wiretaps that I've been listening to, who is an associate of the Medellin cartel in the mid-1990s, was caught on wiretap imploring um, the kingpin of the Medellin cartel at that time, Fabio Ochoa, and a Mexican counterpart um, with this. Are we their shit or are we the shit? We got to be our own way, right? Um, and then um, in here, I would just point out that the abject, the shit, the excrement, right? Um, and then note the emphasis on we got to be our own way. We got to be our own boss. We got to get out from under. And then MS-13 members, um, their mounting resistance to their experience um, has been formulated somewhat differently, but equally as colorfully. Um, we ain't their bitch hoe. That's the one I, I liked best. Um, we're not their captive. Um, so this conscious... Um, Articulation of abject desperation complicates the emotional circulation among network members further. And what emerges is a social space of transnational criminals in which circulates a complex brew of emotional energies that push in multiple directions. And I'm not arguing that one is necessarily going to win out, but I am suggesting um, that political violence makes the most sense when you recognize the multiple energies. One would be the emotional energy that gives value to the pursuit of illicit profits, right? The original logic behind transnational criminality. The second um, is the emotional energy of abjection that I've just spent all this time theorizing. Um, and then the last is an emotional energy of rage that emerges um, as the consciousness and discussion of being captive, of the bitch ho, the shit, whatever, um, takes over in, in, in a certain um, social space among transnational criminals rippling upwards and outward. Um, so as an increasing number of network members um, become entrained to the experience of rage in response to international authorities, then we begin to understand that political violence against those authorities acquires a rationale, one that's very difficult to appreciate only through a profit-maximizing lens. Okay, so I've been talking a long time. I'd be um, happy to say a word about the uh, emotional research, <laughs> the empirical research on these emotions, um, although uh, um, I will, I will um, hold, that, uh, hold off on that, and I'd be happy to connect this to the larger project, but um, I think that for now I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you. Do I sit? I'll, I'll ask Janice to okay. take her own questions, but I ask that you people identify yourselves for her, if you don't mind. Hi. Um, okay, I was following you pretty well, but then I got to a point where, so the part I didn't get was why transnational crime is part of itself, and why international society needs transnational crime. I thought your explanation for that was that, trans, was that American society needs immigration. Oh, Okay, um, so those were actually, the immigration and crime were two separate examples. Um, and the argument is that um, just like we need to excrete, just the process of excreting is one that 
that reveals to us the limits of ourself. Um, and this is the psychoanalytic foundation. And yet it comes from within us, so it's confusing about the limits of ourself. The same thing can be said of immigrants, right? The U.S., for instance, needs immigrants um, because um, they reveal to us what actually constitutes a natural citizen. Um, and yet we need them um, internal to us so that we can continue to be U.S. Okay, so then third example, transnational criminals, um, is that in the context of international society of the Americas, um, sovereignty is, is this founding principle of, of a particular unique concern for sovereignty. Transnational criminals violate that on the one hand, and yet on the other hand, they are nothing if not an expression of the very values underlying sovereignty. Right? Um, and, and because of that, um, to have the United States as it is in, uh, in reality, not respecting very well the sovereignty of its Latin American and Central American neighbors, um, is a problem for the logic of the international society. And transnational criminality makes that go away. It gives it a rhetorical uh, a frame for, for ameliorating that contradiction uh, because um, you have this threat that is so exceptional and so problematic um, that the discipline of it requires um, uh, exceptional maneuvers. And so we can see it as uh, we can continue to talk the talk of uh, fundamental respect for sovereignty across the Americas, um, while in reality the U.S. basically ignoring everyone else's. Could, could you give some yeah, the certification process is a great one. Um, so certification um, is um, a process that the U.S. began kind of loosely um, in the late 70s and then really ramped up around um, the Clinton era um, where the um, plan is that we um, evaluate the extent to which you meet our standards for controlling um, narcotics trafficking and the production of, uh, of drugs and chemicals that turn into narcotics. Um, and if you meet our standards, we certify you, and then we allow you to continue to do business with us. Um, and if you don't, um, then we punish you by revoking aid, um, and we uh, uh, engage in other kinds of um, uh, sort of sovereignty breaching activities in the sense But the idea behind the OAS is that uh, if you look at the beginning, at the beginning wording of the OAS charter, it's that we are sensitive uh, to the importance of autonomy, right? And autonomy is linked to sovereignty. You're imagining sovereignty in a very particular kind of way as a formal legal 
thing that actually um, has to do with whether or not I come in and beat you up on your own territory. But the way it's navigated in the OAS charter is about autonomy. And this is a way of saying, I'm sorry, you're simply not autonomous. So it violates the logic of sovereignty as formulated in that society. So you're saying that if we think that you're not doing a good job cracking down on drug dealers or or drug cartel within your country and we don't no longer aid you or we take away some aid or we slap trade sanctions on you, that is a, a violation of their autonomy and we have violated their sovereignty rather than an expression of our sovereignty, our autonomy to say we don't, you know, we don't have to fund you if you're not doing what we like. Um, yeah, I am That's saying that because the, because the way that sovereignty is constituted in that society is very different than what you're expressing. I mean, your point is well taken. Um, but, but given the kind of arguments that you see going on between um, Mexico, Bolivia, and the U.S., it really is formulated in the, this is so systematic that we simply don't have any autonomy from you. And then after the U.S. puts enough pressure on them, you see a switch in the discourse so that all of a sudden they're collaborating and we're accepting this. But, it, you know, if you, if you take it seriously as this is at least the grounds on which we can make this acceptable to ourselves... Um, then when the U.S. gets too far away from that, it threatens um, to destroy the integrity of, uh, of that relationship. And the U.S. needs it as much as anybody does, right? Um, the U.S. needs to be able to have access to these countries for a whole variety of reasons that it defines as relevant to its national security. So... Um, well, I guess um, the race, and I, I, I agree, yes, it's a race and masculinity thing. Um, but I actually am not going to talk about that because that's not how I've been studying it, although I think that's a completely legitimate angle to go at it. And um, uh, in a way, I've done myself a disservice by, by not sharing with you the empirical dimensions of my project because um, my focus ultimately is less on how um, the, the, the states abject um, the criminals, then the experience of the criminals in response and their response. So I'll, let me uh, give you some examples. I've been spending, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm focusing on two cases, MS-13 from about 2003 to the present to the Colombian and the Colombian cartel um, from about 1995 to 99. And um, these are when the regular acts of, of political violence start escalating. Um, so what I've been trying to do is ascertain the extent to which the emotional dynamics that I've just sort of theorized for you can be linked to the shift in political violence. 
Um, and I'd been listening to wiretaps and talking to MS-13 members, wiretaps of the Colombian Mexican Cotec. Um, but I want to give you an illustrative anecdote um, of the kinds of embodied emotional experiences that I'm talking about, because what I found in the Colombian case, for instance, I've come to recognize disgust as a, I'm, I'm not going to try to imitate the sound because it would it wouldn't come out right, but a sort of a, a sharp intake of breath coupled with a spitting and hissing sound. Um, and it's usually performed without interruption to the conversation. Um, and there is, of course, a lot of differentiation in how different um, people perform it in the wiretaps. Um, <clears throat> but it's almost always enacted by multiple participants during conversation focused on international law enforcement. And so there's this one great conversation um, in which they're talking about bringing it home to the man. Um, and this noise is going on constantly in the background, and so loud that I don't know if you've ever heard cicadas at night in Pennsylvania, but it's loud. Um, you can't hear yourself think, and it was like that loud, and I was starting to get irritated, ready to shut the tape off. Um, and one of the other interlocutors told, just said, shut up! Um, and first, in response to this, he was accused of being a narc, um, which is kind of interesting. It was lighthearted. But um, then when the chiding calmed down um, and the conversation resumed, the sound resumed. Um, and as it starts resuming, Ochoa, who's the kingpin of this cartel, says, the horse pays, then he makes this noise. we got to see the horse for what it is. And he makes this noise again. Now, this is interesting because while in the U.S., horse is slang for heroin, in Colombia, it's slang um, for cocaine, and the reason for that is because a lot of the Colombian um, cartelito leaders at this time were also horse breeders. Um, and so what he's referring to here, of course, is that, right, um, you know, selling cocaine pays, but uh, we got to see the cocaine for what it is. And he's making this disgust noise as he's saying it. Um, and so he's simultaneously, right, in the same conversation, we're having disgust at law enforcement and disgust at self. Um, and it's this unintelligible experience of abjection. Um, I, I would also just um, point out that things were really quiet after that for a few minutes, um, and the meeting seemed to sort of be breaking up as far as I could tell. I mean, who knows what was actually going on in the background. But then there's a major scuffle. I can't tell what it is, and I don't, I don't yet have um, enough of a granular analysis to be able to tell you if there's a particular emotion that I could identify going on there. But um, at some point, Flacco's voice comes back on, and he says, all the more reason we got to get out from under the man. Right. Um, so this is what I mean when I'm talking about the embodied experiences. I'm trying to read the bodies of these of the people in the throes of it to see if I can trace out the relationship. Is it's more of a plausibility probe, I guess, in sort of social science language. To what extent can I um, can I see a, a correlation at best, right, um, between emotional experiences that I might come to understand as abjection and rage and acts of political violence? Um, so that's how it functions in my work. Um, but, but you make an excellent point about the way it gets represented uh, um, on, on our, uh, by our government on the ICE website. Yeah? Right. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, presumably there's a policy implication in here somewhere, if I'm right. Um, well, first one clarification. Purification isn't possible with the abject. It's only possible with the enemy. Um, but you can't purify yourself from the abject because you would die if you got rid of it. Um, so the question is, how do, you learn, how do you find a way of living with that which is killing you? Um, and, um, yeah, I don't have a great answer to that yet. Um, and I'm not sure that that will be where my work takes me. Um, but, but insofar as abjection does drive the way that we architect our policies and drive the way that transnational crime responds to us, um, you know, I guess there's the question of can we be entrained, can we entrain our bodies to different kinds of emotional responses to things that we now experience as abject? Or does that kill you too, right? Um, Right. Except that it goes two ways, right? I've described a dynamic. I mean, I, I take your point very well, but there's a dynamic, right? It's also that international society is objecting the thing that it depends upon, right? Um, and, and actually, the way I've argued it is that that's what touches off the move from the economic to the political. Um, that were, were we just disciplining them in the way we do the burglar or the regular bad guy, and maybe they wouldn't be turning into political, uh, politically violent um, criminals in addition to being economic criminals. And it actually raises all kinds of questions about whether we might try to understand, you know, to what extent are terrorists um, pr previously abjected now um, uh, self-authorizing uh, autonomous sovereigns. And actually, that's the title of the book project is Illicit Sovereigns, um, asking that kind of a question. And it also raises the question of what happens if you're in an international society where this robust norm of sovereignty, this understanding of sovereignty, um, is, uh, you know, that the, that the rhetorical foundation of the society doesn't, uh, isn't inconsistent um, with having difference in the midst? Right? What, I mean, certainly the case that in the EU they don't um, have nearly as punitive um, policies towards uh, transnational criminals, although the more things get policed at the international level, above EU level, the more they don't have a choice. Um, but would that mean that, that, you, that you're less likely to see the shift from the economic to the political criminal in that case? So those are more the kinds of questions that I would feel comfortable extending to, but presumably um, if, if one takes seriously the idea that we're physiologically capable of becoming entrained to different emotions, the answer to what, what do we do differently would have to come, be something like we need to become entrained to different emotions in response to the things um, that now disgust us.
then as you started, as you're talking, um, it started to feel like your you know, Commissioner Virgil is a U.S. role in the Americas at times, like when you were um, responding to Alex and saying Randy here, there's a sense that part of what you're trying to understand is the U.S. role uh, there. And then the, at some points in your um, talk and responses, it seems like it's these extreme phobic policies towards criminals sort of, uh, that you're trying to explain. Um, and uh, the political violence one, it seems like it's an awful lot of theory to understand uh, violence. It's just, it's, there's a lot going on mm -hmm. uh, to hold on to. Whereas the kind of extreme policies, I can, I can see the link to the need to understand the emotions and, and so on. But I'm having a little bit more trouble seeing it. Okay, so yeah. yeah. I'm sure it's no, I, I doubt it is, but there is a lot going on. I think part of the problem is is that I don't have a dependent variable. I have a dynamic that I'm trying to explain. I'm trying to, well, I mean, I'm not trying to, I am, I guess. What I'm trying to explain is why the shift from economic to political, I, clarification, they haven't stopped being mere economic criminals. They are also doing economic crime. I just want to go on record as acknowledging that. But uh, transnational crime networks, um, have traditionally been understood to engage in economic activity. This gives them incentives to fly below the radar of law enforcement. Yeah, you need to kill a few cops here and there. You need to um, corrupt the state or hollow it out or whatever to make it easier for you to accomplish your ends. But the one thing you don't want to do because you depend on the state, um, you need the state to exist to create the rules that you can then break to profit from, right? So what you don't want to do is challenge the very existence of the state or the authority of the state. Um, and yet, that's exactly what's going on, is these transnational criminal networks are, in fact, just yesterday, um, it, it was reported in um, uh, UPI, uh, reported that um, uh, uh, MS-13 in El Salvador put a hit on an ICE agent in New York. Right? Um, that's, f that's a phenomenally bold move for a transnational crime network to make. Um, against a state because what it does is says, hi, I'm over here, come and get me. It's not, it is not a good way of seeking profit. Okay, so what I'm trying to explain is why does that all of a sudden seem like a good idea to them? Maybe not all of a sudden. Well, I don't know if it didn't used to happen. What I know is that accounts don't allow for it and no one takes it seriously, right? Um, it gets explained away immediately as economically rational and I'm simply not persuaded by that. Okay, so that's, that's the broader agenda. Um, uh, uh, my critique of the grievance argument is a critique that says we can't explain this by looking at identity, right? Because, uh, grievances come from having shared values and shared identities um, or, or something close to that. And these are people from, I mean, there's 75,000 MS-13 members across five or six, maybe seven countries. It's very hard to imagine the collective identity forming. Maybe there is one, but I, I'm, that feels like a far distance for me to go. Emotion, on the other hand, is something that can circulate, that can happen momentarily. It can be durable. It can be, not be durable, right? That it's situational um, over time. And so it seems to offer more insight into how it is um, at least, um, it gives me a starting point for thinking about how it is that they could um, be moved to a particular kind of violent action um, that doesn't make sense economically and that doesn't depend on identity. So that's how I get there. Um, 
But the emotion I'm talking about is a dynamic between international society and transnational criminals. So both Randy and Alex were asking me questions that pertained to the international society side of that dynamic. And that's possibly the confusion about um, the U.S. role part, right? Because there is, and I've actually had trouble with this side of the argument, um, and not just for reasons that Randy's mentioning, um, uh, but but that as well. But... but, um, the very idea that somehow states in international society feel. I'm not sure I even need to make that argument. I can simply point out that whether or not they are um, uh, uh, experiencing transnational criminals as abject, they're nonetheless disciplining them as if they were, right? And that sets off the dynamic on the other end. That might simplify things. Um, but as I said, I'm, you know, this is kind of a in-workshop mode, and that's only been occurring to me that I might not need to go all that distance on the other side. It might simplify things. But it is complex, right? And I, and I actually think that's important. Part of the problem is, is that we haven't been willing to take complexity seriously in trying to understand the underlying um, uh, situations that make outcomes possible, and emotion is simply complex. So I, I, I recognize everything that you're saying. Um, I just uh, I'm not sure that complexity is a reason for dismissal. Yeah. It's a good question. Um, in principle, I don't reject it. Um, but the problem with um, transnational crime networks is that they're not nearly as institutionalized as relations between states. Um, the cells in any given network um, are relatively stable over time, but the members of the cells change regularly. And since um, um, I, you know, my understanding of identity is that it has to be embodied, right? So the bo- as the bodies come and go, things change. But the but the but the the important point is that identity is a the the uh, the bar for reaching identity is much higher than the bar for experiencing emotion, and while in principle it's possible that you could have that happen. Um, and I think that there are a number of um, uh, local organized crime networks where identity is absolutely part of, the, part of the mix. But at the transnational level, it's a very hard case to sustain. Yeah. 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 Often, when I thought of the political killings, you know, when you said they're not economically rational, but there are a lot of things that aren't economically rational that takes place in a society or a group that highly values a kind of mass kill, mass kill or knives sense of honor. Right. I was wondering if it might work in this case. Actually, that's a great point. Um, what it suggests is that. Um, uh, in addition to abjection, there might be alternative reasons. Uh, in other words, the alternative explanation is a different emotion. Um, I just uh, uh, had lunch with Ned, Ned LeBeau <laughs> two days ago, who was at Lehigh giving a talk on honor. Um, and it didn't occur to me then, but you're making an interesting point, um, which 
I'm not sure I know how to answer. Partly my hesitation comes from not understanding the parameters of when honor becomes uh, um, uh, an experience for someone, but, but understanding the parameters of abjection, right? Um, in other words, I've read about abjection. I haven't read enough about honor to know when to expect that, that, the, that it will become the basis for an action tendency. Um, uh, yeah, I can't answer your question. I'm sorry. Yeah, there is, right. Right. Yeah, no, it's a great point. I mean, the only thing that that gives me pause, and I'm thinking this through as I'm answering you because I I hadn't thought about it, and now I'm realizing, gosh, I really should have thought about that, um, is that honor and the conditions of honor, um, well, never mind. Okay, never mind. Obviously, you've you've provoked some thoughts. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. No, no, I didn't feel that uh, way at all. Okay, so you, in your answer to Jennifer, and what you, the basis of your talk is that this, what they're doing, see, if your point is that, well, you know, you don't want to undermine the authority that sets the rules that you, you're going to break, right? That, that doesn't make sense. It's irrational, is what you're saying, right? It's kind of counterintuitive idea that why would they want to undermine the sovereignty of the U.S., for example, it's making the rule that they're breaking and enables them to be an organized crime group that makes money. But then your example with them undermining U.S. sovereignty is they kill an ICE agent. Like, is that, are they really worried? That is exactly my point. Is that that the, this is a real bandwagon effect. I mean, you know, uh, uh, a positive feedback effect. If you kill an ICE agent, somehow this is going to, the U.S. is not going to be a sovereign state that can make rules and laws and enforce them. That's the first point. Then the second point is you're saying, well, it goes against the economic process. It doesn't make any sense. But do you have any data to show that killing an ICE agent has hurt them economically? I mean, are they going? Are they losing money? I mean, <laughs> right. but, I mean that's the economic point. Now, the other thing is you're, you're saying emotions matter, economics matter. But, you know, everything matters. Air matters. You know, water matters. None of us would be here without those. I mean, so... So the thing is, how much does it matter? So I ask you, imagine if, if there were no money in drugs. Imagine if you legalized drugs, right? You said, how, how could you get rid of it? Legalized drugs, right? But if there was no money in this, would they be doing it because they emotionally find it interesting? Well, they wouldn't exist. Right, but okay. it's the money that's driving them, right? I mean, of course, there's always emotion in money, right? But it's the money that's driving yeah. them, right? Well, I mean, so you're saying, yes, there's emotion involved, of course. Uh, to some extent. I can find some of those, but you haven't showed that killing an ICE agent is hurting them economically, and you haven't showed that it's going to undermine the sovereignty of the U.S., unless there's some Rube Goldberg trap thing going on. I have no idea. Well, um, <clears throat> I'm not really sure how to respond to that, because um, <laughs> well, if, if you'll just let me try. <laughs> um, it's clear to me that Making a profit is the reason that these networks exist in the first place. That is why they come together, and I'm not denying that. 
There is a puzzle as to why they're engaging in tactics that make it harder for them to do that. I don't know if their bottom line has changed or not. I'm not sure that that kind of information is available. We know, we all know, uh, uh, that uh, I forget the guy's name, but he's like the sixth richest man in the world now or something. He's some co-kingpin. I don't know if you guys saw that issue of U.S. News and World Report. But anyway, so I don't know if it's hurting their bottom line, but that is only one way of thinking about this because in the end, a rational approach would say that if you're trying, that there's that... Part of the part of why this is so pays so well uh, is because it's risky, but you want to minimize your risk, right? You're not out there trying to get caught, and so whether or not it affects their bottom line, the idea of drawing attention to yourself runs counter to the very idea of being a criminal. So, you know, that just seems to me to, to sort of focus only on an end thing without worrying about the rational dynamic of the process that goes through it. And the other way of doing it, of course, is to hollow out the state, um, to, to kill off the ICE agents, um, and to take over the American state. I'm not arguing that, that that's what they're trying to do. In fact, my argument is something different, which is that insofar as this is driven by abjection, and I can't, and I can't demonstrate that at the moment, but, but theorizing that it is, that what they're trying to do is not hollow out the state, but to be accepted from its disciplinary reach, to become um, sovereigns in their own right, in a sense, illicit sovereigns, by which I mean the other, rather than being the abject, right? To be subject to military assault or to be exiled, but not to be captive in this situation where they can't escape. Whether or not it's really going to happen that the state is going to die off because they're doing these things, again, is irrelevant because every single, every single newspaper article that reports on this, every NPR issue, every foreign policy issue that focuses on this begins with the claim that international society or the national society is under siege, that we are, our flesh is being eaten away at. So it's this idea that the perception, I mean, what is sovereignty if not a perception of the amount of control um, that you have uh, in addition to your legal standing? The legal standing is not going to go away. But what is the worry about transnational crime? Your position simply reasons away that there's any problem with transnational anything. But you're making a real, that's a completely irrelevant point. Okay, I, I can't engage that. I don't, it, does, it doesn't bear on my argument. Yeah, Ted. <laughs> Um, yes. Okay. So my, then my question to you is, yeah, that's right. the U.S. have, like, a 
a dozen things that you can use to cover its interventionist policy in Latin America, so it really doesn't need transnational crime. If it doesn't need transnational crime, then it could redefine it or it could repress it. Um, uh, what else? Maybe. Um, I'm not ruling it out. What I'm wondering is... One empirical test for you would be, um, what, what might, you know, if I had to set a research design, I would say, aha, when the Soviet Union collapsed, then the U.S. turned to transnational crime to justify its intervention. Before right. then, the Soviet threat was enough. Well, I mean, and I think, I, I think, I, I'm, I, that's a, a serious point, and it is an empirical question about what else has the U.S. been using for its abject in this region? And I can't think of anything else, and that is an account, you know, that is one story you can tell about it. But it does point to something um, that I, I've been having trouble finding a way of, of emphasizing, which is that um, this, the, what is abject and who is abject is historically contingent, right? It's a moment in time. And I can't tell how, who knows how long this will last, right? We, we, we might have a, a great big exciting new Cold War or something like that that would take the, the emphasis off of this. I mean, part of the reason why it's been 15 years, only in the last 15 years that they've become the abject um, is because that's when we've needed something to do, right? <laughs> um, but but the, um, about the, the interesting point about what you're saying is turning it into the other. Um, what I'm trying to understand in a way, and, and I'm thinking about this as I answer, is, is, is international society, right, do, or the U.S. primarily, making that decision um, on its own, or is it being forced to do so by the violent behaviors of the trans? Are they accepting themselves, right, or is the U.S. just deciding to accept them? And I think, in, the, in this sense, the more violent they become, right, the more the U.S. turns to military responses that they would use normally reserve for sovereigns, right? Um, so why the turn towards political violence? But I, I yeah. Can I raise another alternative? Yeah. Right. Didn't need anti-communism, didn't need transnational crime. And now we have R2P, right? Intervention justified by the fact that governments can't look after their citizens adequately. But I never hear R2P applied to Latin America. I mean, I'm just saying in general yeah. that sovereignty is violated in international politics today through R2P. You don't, you don't need transnational crime. I agree. Um, but where, but where, does R2, where does R2P serve that purpose? Because it, it's not in U.S. Latin American relations. Right. Yeah. No. I mean, exactly. In the sense, I I'm agreeing with you. I'm just not sure that that one does the work in this case. Maybe I'm maybe I'm missing the implication. Um, well, I mean, if, yeah. if, if trade sanctions is a violation of autonomy, if it's a title is a violation of autonomy, certainly favoring direct foreign investment in some countries rather than others is a violation of autonomy. Right. And that okay. happens all the time. It doesn't happen in 60 years. But this goes back to the... But it goes back to the particular nature of the relationship. So I guess a lot is riding on the particular nature of the relationship underpinning international society among these states, right? Um, and maybe that's the question I need to be asking myself, is can, can that relationship sustain the claim I'm making here? Um, that's a good point. I think we have time for one more. Maybe two. Uh, you and uh, Talia. Hi, I'm Kayla Lomas. I'm from the Center here. I did undergraduate study in 
Well, we need a new abject if we... Yeah, to be consistent, the, I mean, consistent with the psychoanalytic theory underlying it, yes, there's always got to be a new abject. Okay. Yeah. Um, these are great questions, uh, and I can't answer them now in the sense that I don't know the, I don't, I didn't know that terrorism was actually growing. For instance, I had always just assumed we're paying more attention to it. <laughs> um, so, but let's assume it is. Well, that's right. I mean, um, but, but these kinds of questions are questions that, let's say I were able to convince even Randy that I was right about, you know, that this dynamic works. Um, and, uh, and I were able to falsify my claims. And then, you know, then, then the question could be extended to, okay, what can we understand about, can we learn something new about the origins of terrorism? Right? I think this is your question. By, by exploring the dynamics of abjection, um, uh, underlying them. But I wouldn't want to, I mean, this is just an instinct, but I wouldn't want to say that, let's say I'm completely right about this, that, that abjection is the only route to becoming a terrorist, right? Um, I have suspicions in the case of al-Qaeda that one of the ways um, that Osama bin Laden was able to cultivate the kind of following he was was by simulating the effect of abjection, right? By, by whether or not he was at the, uh, actually being disciplined in that way, that, um, that, that he cultivates this kind of emotional um, circulation among his troopers, right? And that creates the, the move to, to terrorism. But I, I don't know. Right? And it would certainly be interesting to, to be able to see if the emotional dynamics of abjection connect to the strive for be, striving for being other. But there would be another dynamic of being other, too, which is that society, and this is the sort of typical um, constructivist line, that you know, society, simply some things are so foreign that we just draw our boundary there, and then you're other. And depending on how we treat the other, you could become a terrorist just by, you know, you could have been other and all along, right? So there must be multiple paths.
itself you're talking about is Pan-American society, right? And you said that uh, the, the characteristic feature of Pan-American society is collective sensitivity to sovereignty. So you think if you cut out transnational crime, you'd be preserving itself. So I don't get why you need an excuse to violate sovereignty. I thought the whole point was that sovereignty is what characterizes itself. Um. Um, yeah, except that remember that the that the the process of cutting out transnational crime is a process that involves really tripping over the autonomy, sensitivity, sovereignty thing of other countries. Uh, so that's why, and it's and to go back, I mean, the point about I mean Ted's point, which I actually quite agreed with. There are many things they could be pulling off the shelf. Right, um, so it's not that transnational criminals are necessarily always going to be the abject, um, or that they're the only thing that could serve that purpose. I'm making a historical argument about, R, you know, um, R2P doesn't work in this case, right? And other things might not work in this case. And, and maybe going back to the question that I've forgotten her name already, the woman who just spoke, um, you know, uh, maybe eventually these are. Certainly, eventually, they will cycle out as the important ones, right? And something else will move into that place. Um, but there is, there is implicit in here this notion that there's always got to be an abject, just as there has always got to be another, right? Um, uh, but there is no necessity of it being transnational criminals. And, and uh, yeah, that's a, an important point that I share with both of you. Yeah. I love I love these kinds of things because I can because I, I still feel persuaded that it's not enough um, because um, well I mean you know the, the good news is, is that means that sometimes I am not persuaded by my own argument but in this case I am um, and that's that um, it's a, that that uh, so they have these sort of unspoken ground rules right um, and he violates them so we're going to make uh, you know we're going to make a, an example out of him and kill him um, uh, well if uh, yeah, ex- except that, and that, and that's not inconsistent. But what it what it forgets is um, the the very idea that what they're doing is tagging their work. You know, they're 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 hitting on people who, in the end, represent a political structure rather than just somebody. I mean, this is just one ICE agent. What they're doing is not attacking a single ICE agent. You imagine him as a single ICE agent. They're attacking ICE. They're attacking the American government. That carries a lot of weight. And, um, and, and anyway, just 
as an aside, the tipster, I, again, we don't know how much of this is true or not, but just uh, the tipster who brought this case to um, the attention um, of the authorities uh, said that it was retribution um, for ICE raids on gang members in the U.S. So it really was directed at the collective structure. Um, and that this, uh, he was the, he was the, this particular agent was heading up the New York area raids. So he, they were, went right for the head of the organ, right? They, it's, it's their Osama bin Laden. They're chopping off the head of what they see as their uh, terrorist organization, right? Is the U.S. ICE. Okay, um, as far as. Um, No, but what you but that's not what's going on. Ice raids keep ratcheting up, and that goes to the right. But that's the right, and but that's the answer to your second thing too. Yes, it could be a recruiting device, right? I think that's compelling, and I don't think there's any reason to think there's only one thing going on here. But the effect of doing that is that the the U.S. keeps pushing forward on this international policing regime that gets more and more robust. And every time you have something like this, you get more and more of a crackdown. You get. Obama standing up and saying we can't handle have this anymore, and him not making any changes to immigration policy, or right, and 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 so these things, if they were not having the effect of perpetuating the very problem that they're trying to overcome, maybe I would be convinced. But the but the state isn't backing down, right? But you know I like that game. So. <laughs> thank, thank you very Wow. That was kind of interesting.